Welcome to episode number two of the Structural Engineering Channel, a podcast focused on helping structural engineering professionals stay up to date on technical trends in the field and also to succeed in their careers and lives. In this episode, we're going to be taking you with us back to the ASCE SEI Structures Congress in Orlando, where we interviewed some guests on the current state of the structural engineering industry. This is actually one of two episodes from ASCE Structural Engineering Institute's Structures Congress. The other episode will be published on one of our other podcasts, the Civil Engineering Podcast, episode number 120, in an effort to give the Congress more visibility. I am one of your hosts, Anthony Fasano. I am a licensed professional engineer who practiced as an engineer, but eventually decided I wanted to focus more on inspiring engineers rather than doing the engineering myself. So since then, I've written a book entitled Engineer Your Own Success and have traveled the world helping engineers build their core or soft skills. And I'm your other host, Matthew Picardle. I am a licensed engineer, a structural engineer practicing in California with an undergraduate degree from Cal Poly Pomona and a master's in structural engineering from UC San Diego. I also host a new YouTube channel, Structural Engineering Life through which I'm focused on promoting the structural engineering profession to engineering students and young professionals that aren't too familiar with the industry perspective. Through this podcast, Matt and I plan to try to bring you information that can really help you succeed. And we want to do that in every single episode, which is why we're always looking for your feedback and your recommendations on guests and topics, which you can provide by going to structuralengineeringpodcast.com. There you can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Now, before we get started with this episode, this is a free show and our sponsors help us to keep it free. So we ask that you please support them. Now I'd like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, CSI. Computers and Structures Inc. is recognized globally as the pioneering leader in software tools for structural and earthquake engineering. Software from CSI is used by thousands of engineering firms in over 160 countries for the design of major projects. CSI software is backed by more than four decades of research and development, making it the trusted choice of sophisticated design professionals everywhere. Listen up later in this show where I will tell you more about their great software packages and how they can help you. I also just want to give a personal thanks, shout out there to Ashraf Habibullah, the president and CEO of CSI. I got the chance to meet him at the Congress. He sponsored us bringing our podcast, the Civil Engineering Podcast, down to the Structures Congress, where we were able to get these interviews that you're about to hear that we're featuring on this episode. And of course, he's been already a supporter of the Structural Engineering Podcast. He's very interested in elevating the profession as we are, and we're excited to have CSI as a partner and a sponsor on this podcast. So, What I'd like to do now is just kick it over to Matt so Matt can introduce the first interviewee, David Koch. So our first guest for today will be David Koch, who is the president at Structural Focus, managing director of SafeQ Institute, and the current president of SEI. David founded Structural Focus in 2001 in Los Angeles after working for 20 years at another large structural engineering consulting firm in San Francisco and L.A. David built his firm on excellent client care, great communications, and engineering expertise. The structural focus mission is to design excellent buildings that we can be proud of and be proud of how we do it. The firm strives to be beyond consultants, to become their clients' trusted advisors. 
David will talk about the state of the profession, what's really exciting, but also what's worrying him or what the threats are to the structural engineering industry right now. Yeah, and this was a great interview because David really did talk about kind of the exciting things going on and some of the coalitions in the structural engineering industry, but also some of the threats and what's worrying him. And it was interesting to hear it from someone like him who's been very involved in the different aspects of structural engineering. So here's the interview with David Koch from the Structural Engineering Congress. Before we do jump into this first interview, just one last note. As you hear these interviews, you may hear me referring to the Civil Engineering Podcast. That's because these interviews were originally slated for the Civil Engineering Podcast because we weren't aware that we were starting the Structural Engineering Channel Podcast at that time. However, we split the interviews. So you can find the other half of the SEI interviews on the Civil Engineering Podcast, episode 120. You can Google that and find it. But that's why we're referring to that throughout these interviews. All right, now let's jump in. So, David, we're here at the... SEI Structures Congress. You've been president of the Institute now for six months or so, roughly. Right. We want to learn a little bit about the current kind of state of the structural engineering industry. So what are some of the things right now that excite you about structural engineering? Probably the biggest thing for me is the fact that we, we seem to be pulling our professional associations closer together and coming up with a common vision, that there's a recognition among all the professional associations associated with structural engineering, that there's some challenges for the future. And those challenges include, you know, technology is a big one. Global access is a big one. Business uh, liability, contractual arrangements. Those are all challenges that we're having to deal with, as well as the attraction of young, dynamic people into the profession. Right. Because we're competing with the IT industries and all of these other careers, and yet we still have a very fulfilling job to do, but we're, it's, it's a challenge to be able to compete to recruit the brightest and the best. Yeah, and it's a good point you make, because I know I see this happening in other niches and other industries where there's a lot of different associations, let's say, for right. an industry, and it ends up you know, sometimes doing more harm than good and spreading things out when you right. have to try to come together. So. It's good to hear that, and I think from what you said earlier, you kind of worked on putting together, was it a vision or some kind of a statement with the other yeah, associations? Yeah, well, the, back in 2008, um, SEI wrote a vision for the future. It was basically a vision statement where they said, this is where we want to be in 25 years. And then about five years later, the Board of Governors decided we really need to know what the implementation steps are to make that happen. So they put together an excellent report. Uh, it's a very long report where they came up with 10 recommendations for actions oh, that wow. need to happen. Okay. And so a few years ago, that was 2013, I believe. So a couple of years ago, we realized that we really hadn't taken a good look at all 10 of those in detail and uh, checked on our progress and made sure we were still going in the right direction. Do we need to tweak it? So I was charged with putting a committee, a task force committee together, 
we report directly to the Board of Governors. And uh, we're issuing our final report at our Board of Governors meeting this Saturday. And in that, we've updated those recommendations, we've solicited opinions, we've done surveys, we've had panel discussions, and uh, really updated those. And we've added a couple, two or three new recommendations to that group, reconsolidated, reprioritized. And I'm excited about that. And we were actually telling, um, this is all an SEI effort. And we were uh, in discussions with the National Council of, S of Structural Engineers Associations, NCSEA, mm -hmm. and CASE, uh, two of the other professional associations out there. We were telling them about that um, because we really started to collaborate a lot together in the last couple of years with their leadership. And uh, they got excited about it. And we've actually put a one-page summary of that document together, that one pager was written by the leadership of all three associations together. And it's a draft. It's been approved by one of the boards. We've got two more to go. I think that I don't think we'll have any issue. But to me, it's so exciting because we're very much pulling together and pointing in one direction for that vision. Right. On top of that, we've, we've been um, collaborating with iStruct-E, the Institution of Structural Engineers, which is the United Kingdom Oh, okay. uh, group, and they're the other biggest association out there besides SEI in the world. And we had a leadership meeting with them last night, and uh, they're very much interested in this topic also and interested in looking at that vision to make sure, again, just to double check that we're all going in the same direction. We're not duplicating efforts. We're supporting each other. We're teaming up together in certain efforts. And to me, that's very, very exciting. Because if we don't do that, then we're not controlling our future. And we need to have more control over our future as structural engineers. Sure. No, and that sounds great because it, it, I was going to ask you what's worrying you. And you kind of told me already this idea of recruiting you know, yeah. engineers into the structural profession. You know, There's a lot of competition. But it sounds like if you are going to be able to do that effectively, you need the collaboration of all these other organizations, right. not just here in the US, but like you said, even overseas. Yep. So it's good to hear that. So just to switch gears for a minute, mm -hmm. uh, David's also the president of his company, Structural Focus, which is out of California. Right. And as the leader of a company, mm -hmm. it always interests me to ask about professional development. And okay. one of the big things at this conference is professional development. There's right. a lot of sessions right. here, which is great. What are your thoughts or you know, how do you discuss professional development with your staff? Well, I mean, we have a formal program and an informal program, which, you know, lots of different parts to that. Yeah. Uh, there's a, we pay for all their professional activities, for one thing. We just provide funding. Um, so we, you're a believer in it. Obviously. Oh, totally. We also give them a certain number of hours that they can, at their own decision, they can decide what webinar to go to or what seminar That's to great. go to. We track all the available webinars and seminars out there, and we either say, we'll, the management will go through them weekly through that list and say, recommended, optional, no, we don't recommend this one. But we'll still pay for them, and we'll let people sign up for them, the webinars and the seminars and things like that. There's a policy that if an engineer sees something they want to go do, some professional activity or training or whatever that's kind of off the, you know, a one-off, right. then all they got to do is come and sell it to me. If they sell it to me and I agree it's valuable and we think it's worthwhile, then we'll fund that also. We also have in-house, just informal brown bags. We'll bring vendors in. Sure. Or if, one, if we feel like there's a technical issue that we need to have uh, more discussion about. We'll ask one of our engineers, is anybody interested in 
researching this and then making a presentation back to the rest of the staff. So we'll do that oh, during a brown bag. Anytime anybody does, I should mention, anytime anybody does go to a seminar or webinar, they have a responsibility to come back and report it back to the rest of the staff. So we get to leverage every time somebody learns something, we want them to present it so everybody can hear what that has to say. I think that's great in a lot of respects because, number one, it gets them... First of all, just the whole idea of having people, giving them the opportunity to go out and find courses, really has them take ownership of their own development, which I think is great. Yep. And then in terms of coming back and presenting it again, it's going to, I think, really keep them focused on the content because right. they got to present it. But then also, it's really good for them from a confidence and speaking perspective to Absolutely. have to speak and present. So all great things there. The only last question I have for mm-hmm. you, which I'm always interested in asking people in your position is, you know, when you lead a company, you obviously have a lot of things to think about. So, which is different from maybe when you're in the design position, right? Where you're right. coming to work each day and you're designing a certain thing. So... What do you do to try to figure out where to focus your time and energy? How do you do that? Is it just thinking about what's needed for the firm, or what does that look like? Well, you know, I started the firm in 2001 with me, and my wife was doing all the non-engineering stuff. I did all the business development and engineering. She did everything else. Since then, we're close to two dozen people now. Wow. I still manage projects, but there's five project managers including me. Wow. And obviously, I don't spend as much time doing that. A few years ago, I decided I had to give something up. So I hired a marketing person, which was a huge relief for me because they're much better at it than I was. And it took that off my plate. So that was tremendous. As my partners, now partners mature, I can offload more and more and more and give them more and more responsibilities. And I'm doing that while, I can, while I'm still around to be able to mentor them okay. and, and train them. And they're all coming along very, that's coming great. That's great. So it sounds like as the business grows, it's a constant reflection or kind of for you to look at everything on your plate and say, yeah. what can I get off my plate? Right. How can I give this to someone and teach them while I'm available to teach them? You're constantly going through that process. Yeah, and, you know, eventually I'm going to step down from the leadership and they're going to take over. Right. So I I have a responsibility to train them or get them trained so they are going to be able to do all the stuff that I do. And I will will remain confident that they can do that, you know, do a a good job. And not everybody's the same. There is no other David out there, so I can't expect somebody to be exactly like me and I'm going to have to accept that that you know right. they're going to have there's they certainly have a lot more strengths than I have and there's they maybe I'm stronger in a couple of areas they're stronger in a lot more areas than I am so it's going to be different place but that's just the way it is we have to accept that yeah no I do a lot of work and sometimes some of the in the training it's tough to teach engineers how to delegate and right. I think part of it is what you just said you know you have to come to grips with this mindset first that you know listen I can't take on everything. Other people have different strengths than I do. Right. So it's not going to be exactly the same, but some things will be better and some things I got to help Absolutely. them with. Absolutely, yeah. And that's like the first hurdle, right? Mm-hmm. To being able to give someone something to do is just getting that in your mind. So. And I do think, I've seen other colleagues struggle with that concept. Yeah. And, and it's, you just have to, you have to. Otherwise, because you can't work forever, you can't, you know, no. you're not going to be there. And it's often a limiting factor in a company's growth if the owner exactly. is trying to hold on to too many things. You just right. can't scale the business. No. I mean, just do, do the math. You can't, you can't scale it. Exactly. Yep. So, all right, well, David Cock, thank you so much for spending some My time pleasure. with us. The conference is beautiful here. we got a lot of people, a lot of energy, and I appreciate you taking a few minutes to spend Yeah, thank us. you so much for helping to promote it, and uh, this has been fun. Thanks, David. All right.
I hope you enjoyed that spot there with David. He's a bright guy. And I think the structural engineering industry is better for having him in these leadership positions. And it was interesting, Matt, to hear him talk about not only what's exciting, because there are some really exciting things going on in the structural engineering industry, many of which we hope to showcase through our episodes and through our guests. But it was also interesting to hear him talk about what's worrying him or this idea of the threat of these other professions like computer science or IT that people may choose over structural engineering. Yeah, and I think that's up to us as industry, as a profession to kind of promote ourselves because, I mean, the software and the computer sciences, they're doing a great job at it. I mean, a lot of students are drawn to that. It's out there, it's everywhere, and they're communicating it well to the students. Uh, I think as a profession, for us, we could do a lot better. I think for me, I'm doing the YouTube channel, which I hope can attract more of the younger engineers, tell them why our profession's great, why I do what I do, what a typical day is for me. And hopefully that can bring in more promotion for the structural engineering industry. They have a better idea of what it is coming from an actual structural engineer instead of kind of just going on the internet forums where I guess a whole bunch of uh, negative stuff can be said on the internet. But actually going and seeing an actual structural engineer do what he does, I think that's one way we can better help the profession, just putting ourselves more out there, even on the internet, getting better with social media and promoting ourselves as an industry. Yeah, for sure. Obviously, that's another goal of us on the, doing this on the podcast, which we mentioned back in episode number one, to just kind of elevate the profession for sure. And in fact, Ashraf Habibullah, who's the president and CEO of our sponsor, CSI, who I mentioned earlier in this episode, he gave a keynote speech at the same Congress conference with the same message of structural engineers need to elevate themselves in the eyes of others. And again, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the computer science or becoming an IT professional, but at the end of the day, we also need engineers and specifically structural engineers in this case. I mean, structural engineers design buildings and bridges and critical components of infrastructure. With all of the infrastructure kind of crumbling across the country and beyond, this profession will be critically important. And Ashraf really makes the case that structural engineers are just as important as other professions like doctors and lawyers that get paid much more, which is why he feels structural engineers really need to stand up for themselves in that regard. And I think content and getting ourselves out there in ways like that can help that to happen. So with that, let's transition into our next interview from the conference. Next up, you're going to hear an interview with Stephanie Slocum, who is a structural engineer and the founder of Engineers Rising LLC. Stephanie has 15 years structural engineering and project management experience on large architecturally complex building structures in both small and large firm environments. She's the author of the 2018 book, She Engineers, Outsmart Bias, Unlock Your Potential and Create the Engineering Career of Your Dreams. Stephanie founded her startup in 2018, so she loves talking to students or young professionals who may be considering a future leap into entrepreneurship. Her company helps engineers, and especially female engineers, own their work and worth so they can become leaders. She shines light on the barriers to success and provides practical training, inspiration, and mentorship through her online platform, speaking, and career coaching. So here's the interview. And the first question I asked Stephanie about was this idea of structural engineering becoming a commodity, which she spoke on as part of her business boot camp session at the ASCE SEI Congress. So, you know, in a lot of engineering conferences, we get into a discussion about 
you know, how we as engineers aren't appreciated, our architectural clients, you know, keep on running us down on fees and try and get us to compete against each other, you know, in, a, in this race to the bottom. Right. And then we start talking about, oh, well, you know, engineering is a commodity and that's why we're finding ourselves in this situation. But the reality is if you are, we're at the Structural Engineering Conference, every engineer here could design a beam. Right. I mean, that part is a commodity. But as you're looking at this from a, you know, I'm coming at it from a business perspective, it's how does your beam fit into the broader vision of what your client um, is trying to achieve with the new building or the infrastructure you're designing? And if you can articulate to your client that you understand their vision and that you understand the, you know, design of the beam in this case, you're not just designing the beam, you're, you know, helping them doing a hospital renovation that will potentially save lives. Right. That you understand what their needs are and that your design gets there, then you're no longer a commodity. Then you become a trusted partner in helping the client achieve their needs. And I think too often, like when we complain that we're a commodity, it's because we're looking at it from a like what's in it for me perspective as opposed to like a how can I best serve my client. Right. It drives me up the wall when people are like, engineering is a commodity. No, it's only a commodity if you cannot articulate what you're, the value you are providing to your clients. Right. No, that's great. It is. It's all about what value do you provide as an engineer to your client, and you know, being able to convey that to them effectively. For example, then you can go to your client, and then you can talk on other topics. Right. You're adding more value because now you understand the whole project and all the different moving parts, not just your one component of engineering that you're doing. So again, I'm just trying to give you an example of how you could provide more value beyond just your design to your clients. And it could be, you know, having industry knowledge. It could be understanding different materials that are more cost effective for your client that maybe other engineers don't have, right? It could be relationships. Like a lot of in the world of residential development that I lived in, you know, civil engineers that had good relationships in the community would often get hired over other ones because you have to get projects through boards and you have to move projects forward. So if you know people, that can be very helpful. I like the topic that, you know, Stephanie brings up here because I do think it's just important overall, if you're going to be successful as an engineer, you just need to think about your overall value. Right. And you need to understand how what you're designing fits into the big picture. So as we're talking about specific examples for how you bring value, knowing the pitfalls of structural design as it relates to other disciplines. So right. what potential things could you have issues with mechanical or foundations and bringing those up early in the project, particularly while an owner is in the room, also demonstrates your value that you're not just the engineer sitting in your office designing something. Yeah, that's come up a few times at the conference here. And it, it is a good point to reinforce is that you could be a great engineer. You could offer a ton of value to your client, but sometimes you also need to like make them aware of it because they may not be aware of it, right? They may not understand that you just saved them X amount of dollars because they don't understand engineering. So for example, and again, I'm giving examples from the projects that I worked on, but you know, if we were working on like a stormwater system design, yeah, you could put an underground system in that costs a lot more money, saves you some area, but hey, maybe there's another part of the site where you are able to put some surface items that reduce the cost of that underground structure. And again, and conveying that to your client is important. So I just think it's an important topic that um, if engineering is going to not be a commodity and not race to the bottom, so to speak, more engineers need to think this way and need to think beyond just doing a design and getting out, checking a box and going to the next design, but thinking about the value that your design is transferring to the bigger picture 
as Stephanie mentioned, and just also, you know, how are you conveying it? And it doesn't mean you go around bragging to people, but it means if someone's going to pay you to do something, they need to be aware of the value they're getting. I don't know how else to say it. Right. And it's on us as engineers to educate our clients as to the value they're getting. And I think we lose, you know, once again, if you're a commodity, you're not educating your clients because you have to kind of bring them along on the design process with you so they can understand and really be able to see your value. Yeah, and it's, it's about education. I guess that is kind of one of the challenges sometimes of engineering is you, know, you do have to educate your clients maybe more than other industries because everything that you do is not clear to them, right? Because they don't, they don't understand it. It's too complex and too intricate. They don't realize that by you picking one design over another, you may have saved them $100,000, right? They don't get that. So it's just about understanding the value. And I always just try to recommend to engineers that if you want to be a really good engineer and you want to build a strong career, always just think about the value you're transferring to people and how you can improve that, increase that, convey that. Because from a big picture perspective, I think that's what drives success for people and and for companies. So Stephanie, thank you for joining us on the podcast. I know you're very active. I see you on the ASC forums and online and you've been an active proponent in the structural industry. And again, thanks for taking the time here. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. So that was Stephanie Slocum, and she made some really interesting points about engineering and specifically structural engineering kind of becoming a commodity or already being a commodity. Matt, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think she made a great point. As engineers, I mean, by default, we can all design a beam, but that makes us a commodity. I mean, you just go hire someone from school, have them design your beam. But I think she made a great point into how does that beam fit into the broader vision of your client. What can you do besides designing a beam that makes you not a commodity, but a trusted advisor or partner? I think that's what engineers, as they develop more in their career, should you know definitely be more aware of. You'll Once you start getting into the business of structural engineering and you're working for a firm, kind of seeing the bigger picture. Yes, we can design beams, but also, I mean, we have a lot of software that can do that already. That's kind of a commodity. You kind of just input numbers, but how do you add value besides that? Is it in the way you manage a project? Can you be organized and communicate with your client effectively? What are you doing to make their vision come true? Do you know what your client wants, what their vision is in terms of, do they want the cheapest building or do they want the highest quality building? kind of being on the same page and communicating what you can do for them. So I do think that's one thing. And I think it's definitely lands more in the soft skills area. So I think the soft skills, if we as structural engineering industry develop that more, I think we'll start seeing less of structural engineering as a commodity and more of of us as advisors or partners to the client. Yeah, no, it's a great take on it, Matt. And I think that that is one of the topics or issues that we will dive into deeper through this podcast, for sure, through the episodes that we do. And in fact, if you're a listener and you happen to know of a structural engineer or several structural engineers that have done exactly what Matt's saying, that they've really developed their business and leadership skills and they really represent the industry and structural engineering well, we'd love to talk to them on the podcast about how they've done that. We've also done some research and some work on this at the Engineering Management Institute, and it really is true. People are not going to necessarily hire you in today's world just because, well, they're either going to do one of two things. They're going to hire you because you're a structural engineer and you have the lowest price, like Matt said, right? Anybody can do it. They can pick the cheapest. 
or they're going to hire you because you have a relationship with them. They know that you go above and beyond. They know that you provide them with advice beyond just the calculations and your experience and all that you bring to the table. So it's your job and your firm shop of kind of elevating yourself to break the mold of a commodity. There's several engineering firms out there that I know of that charge much higher than the other firms and they're doing very well because they've built a reputation and that's how you can break through that commodity mold, so to speak. All right, so for our last interview, we're gonna feature here on this SEI Structures Congress episode, we are going to feature Dr. Elena Sutley. Now, I just wanna mention that this was a longer interview, so what you're going to hear is the second half of it. The first half was on our other crossover episode on the Civil Engineering Podcast that I mentioned earlier on. Again, we did that because we wanted to give some more visibility. So if you go to civilengineeringpodcast.com and look for episode 120, you can listen to the first half of this interview, but the two are independent of each other. She talks about different topics, so you're not going to miss anything by listening to just this one. In the first part, she talked a lot about community resilience. And in this part, she talks about a software that could be used for community resilience, but she also gets into the very interesting question of a master's degree, should you or shouldn't you get a master's degree as a structural engineer, which is always an interesting topic that I've been asked about from a structural engineering standpoint. So let me just introduce Dr. Sutley, and then you can listen to her interview, and Matt and I will come back and break it down a little bit. Dr. Sutley is an assistant professor in structural engineering at the University of Kansas. She is a researcher in the NIST-funded Center for Risk-Based Community Resilience Planning, where she leads the field study and housing recovery modeling efforts. She was recently awarded four National Science Foundation projects to investigate damage after Hurricane Michael, study earthquake resilience in Nepal, assess local hazard mitigation and recovery planning, and a prestigious career award on Convergence Research for Community Disaster Resilience. She is the chair of the Structural Engineering Institute Design of Wood Structures Committee, the balloter for the ASCE 7 Windload Subcommittee, and the chair of the NSF Natural Hazard Engineering Research Infrastructure User Forum, as well as being an active member on other SEI and ASCE committees. All right, so here's the interview with Dr. Sutley. The big pitch with resilience is let's spend the money on the front end because it's cheaper. Okay, the initial cost to install the floodgate doesn't change, but you just prevented two disasters right. by fronting that money on the front end when that vulnerability was identified. So the software that you're speaking of would identify the vulnerability, hopefully ahead of time, and then you could, assuming you have the funding, you could make, or you can make a case to get the funding to avoid the future damages. Right, and there's a lot of people working in, in this area. The National Institute for Building Sciences um, performed a study called Mitigation Saves. Have okay. you heard about that? No. And so um, their, oh, it's not called preliminary, but their preliminary version um, came out about a year ago and, and they showed that for every $1 spent on mitigation, you can save up to five and $6 on post-disaster losses. Hmm. Wow, that's really interesting. So this community resilience is not necessarily specific to structural engineering. It's not. We need multidisciplinary teams. Okay, great. Well, which makes sense because everything gets impacted by disasters, not just the structures. you got flooding and you have other issues. So that's great. All right, let's switch gears for a minute now and talk about being a professor mm-hmm. and that kind of lifestyle, which is, like I said, different than some of the other guests we've had. So you get to work with students, of course, in the real beginnings of their engineering career and then help them as they you know, transition into 
the job market, you know, assuming they go into that world. What's that experience like? You know, I think that's probably the most rewarding part about being a professor when you get to help shape someone's future like that and you get to really teach them things that help guide the decisions that lead to their future. I get a lot of students asking me questions about going into industry versus academia or saying having interest in academia but wanting that time in industry first um, to bring that practical knowledge into their classroom or into their research one day. And I get a lot of students talking about grad school too. That's one of the most common conversations that I have these days is, is grad school the right option for that student? And then if right. so, is it a thesis-based master's, a course-based master's, a PhD? Yeah, so that's kind of like one question that I wanted to ask you about because I know from speaking with a lot of structural engineers that structural engineering is kind of the one field of engineering that they're really high on you having a master's degree because, of course, it's highly technical work. So I've also talked to some other people. In fact, we had someone on this episode earlier today who's a younger engineer, but he's interviewed some engineers for his company. And he said that they do seem to be very disconnected from practical field experience and work. There's a big difference between what you learn in school and then getting into the field. And, you know, he was trying to help kind of bridge that gap. So I guess my question to you is, is do you think that there should be some way to try to get them practical experience while either, whether it's an internship or they do their master's while working or something along those lines? In other words, it's obviously important both. You need to have the technical educational background, but you also need to get the field experience. So just what are your thoughts on that in general? Yeah. Because I know it's, I get those questions just like you get them in terms of should I get a master's? <laughs> I'm, I'm laughing because I know I'm about to sound like an academic when I answer <laughs> this question. But it's a really good question. And the first thing I'll say is everyone's different, right? And, and everyone's got, I would not give identical advice probably to any, right. any two people. Case by case. Right, exactly. So that's really how I first feel. But one of the things that we're seeing in, in civil engineering is that our ABET accreditation is reducing the number of course credit hours that are required and even at the state level sometimes the number of credit hours that students must be able to get a bachelor's degree in and so when you started at say some of the people here right had 138 required credit hours and now we're down to 120. That's wow. a lot of different classes, and so yeah. that's when an undergraduate or a bachelor's degree, they they may have one or two structural design classes when they graduate with a bachelor's degree, so they're just grazing the surface of, yeah. of that knowledge. Right. That's the big reason why the master's degree is becoming so much more important. And that makes sense. I mean, structural engineering is a big, highly technical field. To try to enter into it on two courses is <laughs> really... Absolutely. Yeah. And But then the other question, though, about... Um, how much practical experience should maybe be brought into the classroom. Well, and first, um, I generally think it's a great idea for students to go do an internship. I like for them to be able to have both practical and research experiences through undergrad because I think it helps them then make an informed decision about their next steps and become a better candidate for getting the job that they want in either case because they've got this nice portfolio of expertise now. But within education, you know, that's that's just the two different philosophies I think that are going on is that as a professor, I generally feel like I want to teach the fundamentals. I want to teach the theoretical side. And if you understand 
understand where the code came from, if you understand its limitations and the theory behind that, right. you can easily learn and apply the code later. If you understand the theory and the fundamentals, someone else can teach you a software, but now you'll know whether that software is correct when it gives you the results. So that's a lot of where, where I stand and I think where many academics stand is we want to teach that really the, the theory and the fundamentals because the rest you can pick up. Um, much easier, but you're not going to learn the fundamentals of finite element analysis or of stability theory once you're in the job right. working on a project. You know, I agree with you. I think it's a case-by-case -case basis. I think everyone's different. But what I would say, just my own recommendation from my own experience is try to get practical experience as early yeah. as you can. I mean, even Absolutely. if it's a summer internship Absolutely. or whatever the case may be, because while I do agree, you certainly, to try to tackle a structural engineering career off of two courses is really difficult to do from a technical standpoint, but you can get some of that practical experience before you graduate. Mm -hmm. However, whatever that takes, like us getting an internship, it may not be a big paying job, but it's more valuable than the salary you're getting because of that experience you're getting and the connections you're making. So The networking part is huge of it too, I think. Yeah, the networking is really big. And to that end, too, is getting involved with these organizations and networking and getting on these committees like you have and being able to meet people and build relationships in the industry. Elena, thank you so much for giving us some time here at the conference, taking away from your conference time, but I do appreciate it. It is great to get your perspective as a professor and Absolutely. hearing about community resilience, which is such an important thing in the world today and for us as engineers to be able to have some foresight into community resilience so that we can plan our projects accordingly and help towns like the one you talked about plan ahead and prevent disasters and flooding and things of that nature is valuable. So thank you for coming on the Structural Engineering Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you. And that was Dr. Elena Sutley. She was very interesting. She really gave me some good time there. And she's working on some very interesting things. And it is exciting. And it is really interesting to think about all of these things going on out there in terms of community resilience and softwares. And she got into the whole master's degree thing. There's so many different topics that can be delved into here, Matt. But Matt, what I want to ask you about is you have a master's degree in structural engineering. And so I know, and I do tend to agree with her that it is really a case-by-case -case basis thing. Everyone's career is different. People work in different locations. But for you personally, has the master's degree in structural engineering been helpful? It's been helpful just because I think it is very specific to where you're going to be practicing at. So for me, for example, in California, we have a lot of seismic design and they definitely don't delve too much into that during your undergrad. And in my master's program at UCSD, it was a lot of earthquake engineering that's you know, we wouldn't have gotten into if we didn't get our master's degree. So for a California seismic zone, it was really helpful for me because I got to know the the why on why are the codes written this way? Why are we designing shear walls this way? Why are we designing steel moment frames this way? So for me, it was basically really helpful for me. And I know, again, it's specific to the location, to the company that you're applying for. Just to go back to the California example, a lot of the firms here would prefer a master's degree. Sometimes it's not required, but if you try to go for applying to them, there's a lot of them that say master's degree preferred. So it is something to think about. 
doesn't mean that you can't get into the structural engineering field. It's I think it just makes it a little more difficult. But for me, it's always if you have the experience and if you're a good person to work with, then you might have a better chance of actually getting into the structural engineering field. But it was helpful for me personally, just at least for this field. So it is different. It's really going to be different for people. Again, it can depend on the type of structural engineering you're doing. It might depend on the location you practice in. It might depend on the company you're looking at or the company you work with. I think do the right research. And what I always recommend to people when it comes to career decisions is talk to people that have taken paths that you want to take. I mean, it's always good practice to get some feedback from people. And really, that's part of what we want to do with the podcast is kind of bring that advice to you by interviewing different people that you may not have access to. But I think it's always a safe bet when you're doing career planning, goal setting, decision making, that you talk to mentors or other people that have been there. And organizations like ASC can provide awesome conduits for doing that. So with that, we are going to wrap this one up, but we really do want to once again, thank you and recognize our sponsor for this episode, CSI. CSI produces five primary software packages, SAP 2000, CSI Bridge, eTabs, Safe, and Perform 3D. Each of these programs offers unique capabilities and tools that are tailored to different types of structures and problems, allowing users to find just the right solution for their work. SAP 2000 is intended for use on civil structures such as dams, communication towers, stadiums, industrial plants, and buildings. CSI Bridge offers powerful parametric design of concrete and steel bridges. ETABS has been developed specifically for multi-story commercial and residential building structures, such as office towers, apartments, and hospitals. The SAFE system provides an efficient and powerful program for the analysis and design of concrete slabs and foundations with or without post-tensioning. Perform 3D is a highly focused non-linear tool offering powerful performance-based design capabilities. With CSI products, you can be confident that you have the finest structural engineering software available, backed by a company with an unmatched record of innovation and an unrivaled commitment to meet the ever-evolving needs of the profession. You can learn more about them at CSIAmerica.com. I also just want to say that I really did enjoy the Structural Engineering Institute Structural Congress. It was a very high-energy event. There was a lot of really motivated engineers there. I got to meet Matt in person, and that was kind of the evolution of this podcast. And if you want to check out more about ASC's SCI, Structural Engineering Institute, you can go to asc.org forward slash structural dash engineering institute, or really just probably Google SCI and you will find it. Matt, what'd you think of the conference? For me, yeah, that was my first big structural engineering conference, and it was a really good experience just because I think the best of the best of the structural engineers go there. They give their knowledge. And for me, it was really valuable just because I get to see the structural engineering industry more as a whole. Like I talk to people and they're doing different ways to solve problems that I have at work and I stuff that I've never thought of and wouldn't have even um, known existed if I haven't talked to those people. So kind of seeing, uh, bringing new ideas to the firm and what other firms are doing, it was really valuable for me personally, but also to bring new ideas to my firm. Yeah, for sure. I really enjoyed it. And just a big thanks to SCI and again to CSI for helping out getting us to the conference and for SCI having us at the conference and allowing us to conduct these interviews. Um, We're really excited about it and we're excited about getting these episodes out there. 
We hope that you enjoyed our second episode here of the Structural Engineering Podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback, comments, and or questions. Please visit structuralengineeringpodcast.com. There you'll find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. And remember, you can subscribe to the podcast in iTunes from that same page. You can also leave us remarks, questions, comments by going to structuralengineeringpodcast.com. There's a button that you can email us if you have guests or recommended topics. We would love to hear about them. So until next time, we wish you the best in all of your structural engineering career endeavors. Mm -hmm.